Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. In a major speech in Moscow, President Putin announced the suspension of a key nuclear arms treaty with the U.S. while blaming the Ukraine war on the West. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken calls Putin irresponsible for suspending the treaty as NATO urges Moscow to think twice. Warnings of cancer-causing pollutants in East Palestine, Ohio, U.S. Senators J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown express concern that the EPA hasn't done all necessary tests for air safety in the town. Excavating contaminated soil and water, remediation efforts continue following the toxic train derailment. We bring you an update from a reporter covering the story on the ground. Russian President Vladimir Putin suspends a nuclear arms control treaty with the United States. This comes as he addressed the nation today and the war in Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin says his country will pause the New START treaty with the United States. The agreement sets limits on the nuclear arsenals of both countries. I'm forced to announce today that Russia is suspending its participation in the Strategic Offensive Arms Treaty. Let me repeat, Russia does not abandon the treaty, but suspends its participation in it. The New START treaty was signed by then-President Obama and President Medvedev of Russia in 2010. It took effect the following year. The treaty caps the number of strategic nuclear warheads the two nations can deploy. The U.S. and Russia hold about 90 percent of the world's existing nuclear warheads. The quantity is enough to destroy the Earth many times over. Putin's remarks were part of a major address to the parliament in Moscow. The speech came one year after he ordered the invasion of Ukraine. Flanked by four Russian tricolor flags, Putin told Russia's elites that the war was forced upon them. He accused the U.S.-led NATO alliance of fanning the flames of the conflict. Responsibility for fomenting the Ukrainian conflict, for its escalation, and for the increasing number of victims lies entirely with Western elites. And, of course, the current regime in Kiev. Again, he justified the war as a legitimate response to what he called threats from the West, as well as Ukraine. We protect people's lives, our homeland. And the West's goal is unlimited power. Throughout his nearly two-hour speech, Putin vowed to advance the battles in Ukraine, claiming it's impossible to defeat Russia. He also touched on issues, including Moscow's annexation of four regions of Ukraine and the impact of Western-led sanctions on the Russian economy. Tens of thousands have died since the conflict started in Eastern Europe. Moscow has suffered three major setbacks on the battlefield but still controls about one-fifth of Ukraine. In response to Putin pausing the nuclear arms treaty, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken called it an irresponsible move, and NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg urged Moscow to reconsider the decision. The announcement by uh, Russia that it's uh, suspending participation in the start is deeply unfortunate and irresponsible. Uh, We'll be watching carefully to see what uh, Russia actually does. We'll, of course, make sure that in any event we are postured appropriately for the security of our own country and and, and that of our allies. More nuclear weapons and uh, uh, less arms control makes the world more dangerous. And that's the reason why in NATO we have worked so hard to engage Russia uh, on issues related to arms control and why NATO allies have supported the new start. 
uh, and also why I'm calling on Russia uh, today to reconsider its uh, decision to suspend its participation in the new START agreement. Blinken says Washington remains ready to discuss strategic arms limitation with Moscow at any time. He says the White House will follow the issue closely, commenting on Putin's accusation that the West is trying to destroy Russia. Stoltenberg described Moscow as the aggressor in Ukraine. President Biden visits Poland after leaving Ukraine. He sat down with the Polish president and spoke about their alliance. The Polish president thanked him for supporting the region. Thank you for yesterday's visit because it was an important sign for everyone, a sign that the free world does not forget, that the free world and its greatest leader, the President of the United States, is with them. Mr. President, I know very well how courageous that was, and for that, I thank you very much. The United States needs Poland and NATO as much as NATO needs the United States because there is no way in which for our ability to operate anywhere else in the world and our responsibilities extend beyond Europe, we have to have a security in Europe. It's that basic, that simple, that consequential. So it's the single most consequential alliance, I would argue, maybe the most consequential alliance in history, that not just modern history, but in history. The two leaders met to discuss collective support for Ukraine. Biden expressed gratitude to Warsaw for delivering military and humanitarian aid from the United States and other countries. Biden arrived in Warsaw late on Monday following a visit to Kyiv, where he met President Volodymyr Zelensky. Biden said support of the United States for Ukraine remains strong. He's due to give a keynote speech as the war enters its second year, expected to rally support for Ukraine. Before returning to Washington, Biden is scheduled to meet leaders of the countries on NATO's eastern flank to reaffirm support for their security. Ships from China and Russia were docked in Richards Bay on Monday. South Africa was hosting the countries for joint naval exercises. The war in Ukraine and an aggressive Chinese posture towards Taiwan have had consequences. World powers are competing for influence in Africa as global tensions deepen. South Africa calls the drills routine, but six South Africa-based diplomats, all from NATO or EU countries, say they condemn the drills. South Africa abstained from voting on a U.N. resolution last year condemning Russia. It says it maintains a neutral stance on Ukraine. A large white balloon was seen floating east of Hawaii. It was spotted along a route that airlines use to fly from the west coast to Hawaii. Multiple pilots have reported the object. U.S. Indo-Pacific Command told The Drive it is aware of the reports but offered no further information. Aviation enthusiasts became aware that a military patrol aircraft headed in the direction of the balloon, but then turned off its transponder and could no longer be tracked. It's not clear if the aircraft was on a mission to gather information about the balloon. This isn't the first time mysterious balloons have showed up in the area. A year ago, a balloon belonging to a Chinese spy program was found off of Hawaii's northernmost large island. It's also where the U.S. keeps a sensitive missile defense test site. U.S. Chief of Space Operations General Bradley Chance Saltzman says space has fundamentally changed and that China is the most challenging threat, followed by Russia. He says a growing arms race has altered the space paradigm. Nations are acquiring weapons like anti-satellite missiles, ground-based directed energy, and orbit interception capacities. The start of the current space race could be seen as early as 1985 when the U.S. fired a missile to shoot down a satellite. 
China did the same in 2007, and India followed in 2019. Russia shot down a satellite as recently as late 2021. Saltzman says that instead of missiles shot at satellites, laser weapons or powerful microwaves could cause damage more efficiently. He predicts that space is going to become more crowded, so having standards of conduct in place would make things safer. Senators J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown are sounding the alarm. The pair of Ohio lawmakers say there could be highly toxic, cancer-causing pollutants in East Palestine. Meanwhile, the town's mayor gave a strong thumbs down to President Biden's Ukraine trip. The two senators co-signed a letter to the EPA. They fear the burning of large volumes of vinyl chloride may have resulted in the formation of dioxins and that those chemical compounds may have spread throughout East Palestine or beyond. Dioxins are highly toxic, can interfere with hormones, and can cause cancer, reproductive and developmental problems, or damage to the immune system. They are also concerned that testing for the chemicals may not have been included in the EPA's air monitoring processes. Senator Sherrod Brown called for accountability and follow-through in East Palestine. To assure people that the water is safe and the air is safe and the soil is safe for their children. Some East Palestine residents have reported adverse health effects, including rashes, headaches, vomiting, and other ailments since the disaster. Many have wondered if the chemical spill is to blame. Senator J.D. Vance has made repeated calls for more action. Do not forget these people. We've got to keep applying pressure. That's how we're going to fix this problem. Thank you. Meanwhile, train operator Norfolk Southern announced on Monday that about 15,000 pounds of contaminated soil and over a million gallons of contaminated water have been excavated from the derailment site. In related news, EPA Administrator Michael Regan is returning to East Palestine on Tuesday to provide an update. Regan told reporters last week in his words that we're trusting the science. He added that he would let his children drink the water there if testing showed it was safe. Regan is also expected to announce additional health and safety measures for East Palestine and surrounding communities. In an international twist, the mayor of East Palestine, Trent Conaway, criticized President Biden for his trip to Ukraine. Conaway says Biden's trip shows he doesn't care about the people of East Palestine. The mayor says it was a slap in the face to find out about the trip. He accused the president of ignoring his responsibilities at home while giving away millions of dollars during his surprise visit to Ukraine. Biden's administration has been strongly criticized for refusing to approve a FEMA disaster declaration for the East Palestine crisis. The administration argues that the disaster does not fulfill legal requirements for an official declaration, although it has sent a team and assistance to the town. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Remediation efforts continue in East Palestine, Ohio, following the train derailment. 15,000 pounds of contaminated soil have been excavated from the site. This as former President Trump and whistleblower and environmental activist Aaron Brockovich plan to visit the village. Let's get an update. Joining us now is Epic Times reporter Jeff Lauderback, who has been on the ground in East Palestine following this story very closely. It's really great to have your update, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Norfolk Southern said over one million gallons of contaminated water were excavated from the train derailment site. This comes after warnings to local residents not to drink or bathe in the water. From what you have seen, are residents satisfied with the efforts to remedy the situation? Well, they, since the uh, train derailment happened, that was February 3rd, and then there was a, a controlled burn that's gotten a lot of coverage. That was, uh, I believe, February 6th. So since then, um, residents have had to deal with uh, the fallout 
uh, as the aftermath as far as the toxic chemicals in the air and on the ground. And they're still complaining, uh, what is it, today's February 21st, they're still complaining about uh, headaches, uh, vomiting, skin rashes, burning eyes. Uh, so there's still issues while the EPA and the state is saying everything is safe, but uh, you know people are still complaining about uh, health ailments. That is just so terrible, all the symptoms that they're facing here. Please tell us more about what you've been seeing on the ground and what locals have told you personally. Well, I've talked to a lot of residents in East Palestine and surrounding communities, and this is a village, uh, 4,700 people, uh, a few miles uh, from the Pennsylvania border. It's in eastern Ohio, so and it's in Appalachia. It's a, it's a town where everyone knows everyone. I've had several people tell me that they're they're facing a difficult situation because many of them have lived there for years and they love the town, they love their lives, and. Now they're faced with, uh, they get up in the morning, they're afraid to take a shower, wondering if five years from now that's gonna cause uh, health issues. Um, they don't know about the quality of the soil. They don't know the quality of the air. Uh, people will have chickens and goats, don't know if they can eat the, uh, you know, the meat or uh, eat the eggs or uh, drink the goat's milk. Uh, gardens they don't know obviously it's about uh growing season they don't know if they're going to be able to grow produce and they don't know if that produce will be safe so a lot of things that uh they took for granted or we all take for granted we get up in the morning and live our lives february 2nd life was a lot different for them and then uh february 3rd it changed and it could i mean they readily realize it could be long term that life has changed and that is just so sad, you know, that they love the town so much. And if they, even if they did want to move, it might be hard because who's going to buy their home? Now, for example, both of the U.S. senators from Ohio, J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown, are warning that cancer-causing pollutants are spreading from the derailment site. This has triggered sentiment among the residents of wanting to relocate, or what have you been seeing? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm talking to a lot of residents about I'm doing a story right now that uh, should be ready today. Uh, about the stigma of East Palestine. And that's what several residents have told me. They now, it's a stigma to stay, say you live in East Palestine because people are afraid, like AAA won't send, uh, you know, the auto club, they won't send tow trucks in, like if you have a call and you need uh, service in, uh, in East Palestine, they won't send anyone. Uh, people from outside the region won't send people to East Palestine, their employees. Uh, and these people, the residents, uh, they love it there, but they, their house home values are now much lower. So some of them, or a lot of them want to move. They told me they want to get out, but they don't have a way to get out because they don't have the means for it. And their, their properties are suddenly uh, worth way less than their mortgage. Oh, that's just insult to injury, not having these services even in that area. Reporter from Epic Times, Jeff Lauterbach, great to have your update. Thank you. Another tough blow in Ohio. One person died and at least a dozen were injured after an explosion tore through a metals plant there yesterday. The blast scattered molten metal and debris that rained down on neighboring buildings. The disaster caused a major fire and sent smoke billowing into the sky. The smoke clouds could be seen for miles around the damaged factory near Cleveland. 
All of those injured were on site. The falling debris thankfully spared people at neighboring businesses. I. Schumann & Company produces copper, brass, and bronze and has been in business since 1917. The explosion was about 70 miles northwest of East Palestine, Ohio, where a train loaded with toxic chemicals derailed earlier this month. And coming up, more Americans may be carrying firearms. The TSA says they found a record number of guns at U.S. airport security screenings last year. We have that and more just after this break. Over two dozen groups are opposing the Biden administration's plans to allow more men to compete in women's sports and use the same locker rooms. A coalition of lawyers, parents, civil rights groups, and former education officials wrote a letter to Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. The groups say the Biden administration's plans to regulate school sports will hurt female athletes. The administration has proposed changes to 1972's Title IX protections. It aims to expand the definitions in that document to make it applicable to transgender student-athletes. The groups fighting the changes say the administration is subverting Title IX protections. The president of the Defense of Freedom Institute says it would, quote, result in severe harm to biological women and girls and cause them to lose positions on athletic teams, awards, scholarships and prizes, as well as risk bodily harm in certain sports. A suspect has been arrested in the weekend killing of a Los Angeles bishop. Police say he's the husband of the bishop's housekeeper. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the investigation. A SWAT team arrested 65-year-old Carlos Medina at his home in Torrance, California on Monday. Torrance is about 35 miles southwest of Hacienda Heights, where Auxiliary Bishop David O'Connell was shot and killed. The suspect is the husband of O'Connell's housekeeper. Los Angeles County Sheriff Robert Luna says there was no evidence of forced entry into the bishop's home. The suspect uh, had been at the bishop's house before doing work, uh, so there was some kind of a maybe a working relationship, but we're still trying to figure out what that relationship was. Surveillance footage from the bishop's driveway shows the suspect's SUV at the home at the time of the killing. How he uh, exactly got in there, that's what the detectives need to start piecing together. Luna says detectives discovered two firearms during a search of the suspect's home. Ballistic tests are pending and have yet to link the guns to the murder. Authorities say a caller tipped them off that the suspect was acting irrationally and had made comments about the bishop owing him money. Sheriff Luna says he cannot confirm that claim and that detectives still need to validate if it's true. He added that the housekeeper is cooperating with the investigation and that the motive in the killing remains unknown. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Representative David Cicilline is resigning from Congress. CNN reports that a source familiar with the matter says the Rhode Island Democrat will step down on June 1st to run the Rhode Island Community Foundation. Cicilline was first elected to Congress in 2010. Prior to that, he served as mayor of Providence for eight years and as a state representative. A city council member in California was arrested for election fraud and crimes committed in 2020. He was already facing previous charges of money laundering. Here's more on the story. Lodi City Council member Shakir Khan was arrested on February 16th for a series of crimes revolving around the 2020 election. According to the San Joaquin County District Attorney's Office, Khan was arraigned on 14 felony counts involving election fraud between June 1st through November 3rd, 2020. Our investigation uncovered that Councilman Shakir Khan 
has attempted to undermine, manipulate, and violate one of our most fundamental rights here in our country, and that is the right to free and fair elections. His charges include creating false voter registration, submitting fake registration to Secretary of State, fraudulently casting votes, among others. I would like to note that it appears Councilman Shakir Khan has targeted members of his own community, our Pakistani community in the North County. And we are doing everything we can to work with them to make sure that they are protected and that any damage done to them or their families is corrected by this man's actions. The mayor said the council received his resignation on February 16th. I had the opportunity to speak with him here at the county jail and ask for his resignation effective immediately. He agreed to resign. The city's fully cooperating with the investigation. Khan was already on investigators' radar for a previous criminal activity. In September 2021, he was arraigned for illegal gambling, tax evasion, and EDD fraud charges. He was not supposed to leave the state or country, but violated the terms he signed. Khan posted his trips to Hawaii, Washington, D.C., and New York on social media. So we said, okay, if he's violating his OR agreement, um, there's got to be something done about it. So we brought him back to court, uh, told the judge, hey, he's violated his OR agreement. And so the court ultimately decided to put an ankle monitor on him. As far as I know, this is the only city council member that we're aware of that is wearing an ankle monitor. So that's kind of unusual, too. He will appear at the San Joaquin County Superior Court on February 21st for a hearing on those previous charges. The TSA says a record number of guns were found at airport checkpoints in the U.S. last year. Officials attribute the climb in numbers to more Americans carrying firearms. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what experts and officials have to say about it. Head of the Transportation Safety Administration, David Pekoski, says the number of guns found at airport checkpoints last year was around 6,500, up from 6,000 the year before. We think the reason we're seeing it is because what we see in our checkpoints really reflects what we're seeing in society, and in society there are more people uh, carrying firearms. Experts don't think it's an epidemic of would-be hijackers. Nearly everyone caught claims to have forgotten they had their gun with them. Officials say bringing a gun into a secure area of an airport or airplane creates unnecessary risks and that taking firearms to a screening checkpoint can delay other passengers. Guns don't belong on airplanes, they don't belong in the security area of an airport, and they certainly don't belong at our security checkpoints. Pekoski says the trend has been increasing over the years. He says what's concerning is that close to 90% of the guns are loaded. We will gradually increase the penalties to really reinforce the people to pay attention to the requirements, to the, to the regulations that are out there, uh, and make it safe and secure for everybody in the travel. The maximum penalty for being caught is close to $15,000. Repercussions vary depending on local and state laws. The person could be arrested and have their gun confiscated. Those caught will also lose TSA pre-screening eligibility and could be subject to enhanced screening. Air passengers are allowed to travel with a gun if they declare it to their air carrier and put it in their checked baggage. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. We have a recall to pass along involving a popular baby formula. Reckitt says it's voluntarily recalling two batches of its ProSobi formula. 
The company says it's recalling the 12.9-ounce cans out of an abundance of caution because bacteria might have contaminated the formula. The recall affects 145,000 cans distributed in the United States, Guam, and Puerto Rico. So far, there is no evidence the bacteria made its way into the formula, and there are no reports of people becoming sick. The formula was made between August and September of last year and has an expiration date of March 1, 2024. And another recall, more than 300,000 Starbucks vanilla frappuccino bottles are being recalled because they might contain glass. The drinks are 13.7-ounce vanilla frappuccinos with the expiration dates of March 8th, May 29th, and June 4th and June 10th. Distributor PepsiCo has issued the warning to retailers and consumers. The FDA says the recall began on January 28th and is ongoing. Colorado lawmakers have a new idea for deserted oil wells. The state is charged with plugging the holes to prevent gases from escaping, but they hope to go one step further and use the space to trap CO2. Across the United States, millions of deserted oil wells plunge thousands of feet into the earth. That's where oil and gas have been pumped out to use as fuel. Colorado has roughly 500 orphaned wells scattered across the state. Lawmakers are thinking about filling them with biochar, which is a type of carbon-rich charcoal. The hope is that biochar stuffed down the shafts would not only filter gas leaks, but also trap carbon in the ground instead of forming CO2 and entering the atmosphere. A new bill would direct researchers at Colorado State University to measure the effectiveness and feasibility of the proposal. In Colorado, there are upwards of 500 orphan wells that the state is in charge of uh, plugging. And this bill will look at the potential use of biochar in those plugging and abandonment operations. So there's a large space down the hole that needs to be filled to a certain pressure. And biochar is potentially a substance that can be used down that hole to permanently sink carbon into these holes. Northern Colorado company Biochar Now is creating biochar. They take waste wood and wildfire debris and heat it in kilns to reduce the material to pure carbon. That carbon can then be used for a variety of purposes, from cleaning up pollution in streams to baking bricks. Families that fly on United Airlines together will now have better options to sit together. The airline announced yesterday a change in how it will seat passengers. Kids 12 and under can now sit next to an adult accompanying them without incurring an extra fee. Customers will start to see the changes immediately, but the official policy won't take effect until next month. United says if adjacent seats are not available because of full flights or last-minute bookings, passengers can switch to another flight for free if the preferred seating on that flight is available. And coming up, Chinese microchip makers are shutting down on a massive scale, partly owing to U.S. sanctions. Meanwhile, protests over Social Security broke out in a third city. And in neighboring South Korea, an aging society is driving up the cost of subway operations. We'll have the details soon when we return. Australia's top scientific research agency has become the latest government-run body to cancel the Chinese social media app TikTok. 
A spokesperson for the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization told the Epic Times they are restricting TikTok access on the agency's network and devices and that it is in line with similar decisions made by other Australian government agencies. TikTok is believed to have over 1.6 million users in Australia, with over 1.2 million of those users coming from the country's two youngest generations. TikTok has been mired in controversy due to concerns about its parent company, ByteDance. ByteDance's founder and now CEO declared in 2018 that the company would strengthen ties with the Chinese Communist Party. West Australian Member of Parliament Andrew Heisty previously told the Epic Times, quote, the CCP can compel Chinese businesses to share information with them, and TikTok is an attractive database of the habits, psychology, and personal preferences of over one million young Australians. He added, that's powerful intelligence to have on our future political, military, business, and social leaders. Thousands of Chinese microchip makers have closed up shop. This is due in part to U.S. sanctions, and residents in Shanghai are taking to the streets over health insurance changes. NTD's Tiffany Meyer reports. Chinese chip companies are shutting down on the large scale. According to Chinese media, about 6,000 chip companies in China deregistered in 2022. It marks an almost 70% rise from the year before. In just the last quarter of 2022, 15 chip companies shut down daily on average. As for why, a Chinese website that reports on the chip industry shared a sum up. First, some companies entered the market to take advantage of what had become a major industry trend. But many of them later withdrew after finding out there was little profit to be made. Second, U.S. sanctions put further pressure on the industry. And third, the entire chip industry is enduring a recession. According to a macroeconomist from Taiwan, the division of labor across different countries also makes it difficult for China to remain a top player in the market. The entire production process is divided into several sections. For example, optical technology is from ASML in the Netherlands, special chemical materials are from Japan, semiconductor memory is from South Korea, manufacturing, packaging and testing are finally completed in Taiwan, and chip design software happens in the U.S. Wu said China has no path to success in the chip industry without working with the U.S. Under this competitive situation, China must cooperate with the U.S. and improve Sino-U.S. relations before it can develop the semiconductor industry. However, Xi Jinping is now fighting against the U.S. and wants to compete for world power. Of course, the U.S. is blocking Chinese companies in the semiconductor sector. The Biden administration added China's biggest chipmaker, YMTC, to a trade blacklist in January. And now, nearly two months later, the company has decided to lay off 10 percent of its workforce. Following in the footsteps of Wuhan and other Chinese cities, Shanghai residents are taking to the streets. They are protesting changes to the local medical insurance policy. A play on China's recent white paper revolution, The latest movement has been dubbed the White Hair Revolution, owing to most protesters being retirees. Video clips circulating online show hundreds of Shanghai residents singing on the streets. The song is called The International. It features lyrics like, Arise, slaves suffering, hunger and cold. Arise, sufferers all over the world. My blood is already boiling. I want to fight for the truth. Some protesters were also heard shouting, give me back the money. I need to survive. 
Retirees in several Chinese cities are seeing their medical benefits slashed. In some cases, residents report no longer being able to afford the medicines they need. Last week, tens of thousands of protesters took to the streets in Wuhan and northern China's Dalian city to oppose the benefits cut. In South Korea, free subway rides for the elderly have become a political headache as the population rapidly ages and subway operating costs soar. Every day, 71-year-old Park Yun-sun rides a sprawling subway of Seoul, delivering flowers, documents and other packages around the South Korean capital. People call this sort of work silver delivery because it's popular among senior citizens who are entitled to ride the city's networks for free. Park can earn up to $550 a month due to the lack of transportation costs. However, as South Korea's population rapidly ages and it gets more expensive to run the subway, these free rides have become a thorny political issue, putting Park's job in peril. We're a bit nervous if we are asked to pay for a metro ticket. If we have to pay for the subway, we will have to think about alternative jobs. The Seoul Metropolitan Government should think a lot about this. It's a job for the elderly, and if it's gone, the elderly have no place to work. Free rides have been a perk enjoyed nationally by those 65 and older for four decades and are credited with keeping senior citizens active. However, some cities are now threatening steep fare hikes or to raise the eligible age unless the national government shoulders some of the cost. The finance ministry is staunchly opposed. It says it has funded building and improving subway systems and the cities should shoulder operating costs. In December, Seoul unveiled plans to hike fares by as much as 30%, although free rides for the elderly will remain in place. Bei Ki-gun is the owner of Silver Quick Subway Delivery Service, where Puck works. He says his business doesn't work without free tickets. The recruitment criteria were set based on current subway fares because delivery work requires employees to travel a lot by subway and it costs a lot. That's why we recruit senior citizens over 65. We've tried before, but it's not possible to hire people under the age of 65 in this field. The issue is a political headache for President Yoon suk Yeol. He promised fiscal consolidation upon taking office in May, but also counts elderly voters as a key support base. Currently, more than 18% of South Korea's population of 51 million is aged 65 or older. That's forecast to balloon to 40% by 2050. When asked for comment, Yoon's office said it will review whether local governments can hike up the age for free rides. A Gallup poll last week showed 60% of Koreans support raising the minimum to 70 years old. Japan may need to draw a new map. After a recount, the country discovered more than 7,200 new islands within its territory. The former official tally of islands was about 6,800. The new finding means that number is more than doubling. The old count dates back more than 40 years when statistics relied on flipping through paper maps. So a small island group may be mistaken for one island. The latest count employs the more accurate digital mapping techniques. It also includes smaller islands and sandbanks. But the revised number doesn't mean Japan is expanding its territory because all of the islands are within the country's present territorial waters and exclusive economic zone. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. 
And just ahead, another violent earthquake struck Turkey and Syria yesterday. At least eight people were killed and nearly 300 injured as the nations are still recovering from earlier quakes. And thousands of people gathered in Oxford, England to protest proposed changes to traffic laws. It would limit where cars can drive. More shortly here on NTD News Today. At least six people were killed as another earthquake hit the border region of Turkey and Syria yesterday. The magnitude 6.4 quake hit just as rescue work from the first devastating earthquake was winding down. This quake was followed by 90 aftershocks. All this is fresh trauma to residents left homeless and living in tents by the nearly magnitude 8 earthquake in early February. More than 40,000 people were killed in Turkey in the initial quake, officials say, while the toll in neighboring Syria stands at around 6,000. The Turkish health minister said nearly 300 people were injured in the latest quake. Over the weekend in the UK, thousands of people in Oxford protested against measures that would restrict motorists' movements. Low traffic neighborhoods, as well as proposed traffic filters, have caused controversy in the city. Opponents say it will impact people's freedoms and affect businesses. Entity's Jane Whirl was in Oxford to find out more. Protesters filled the street in Oxford, calling for an end to traffic measures. LTNs, or low traffic neighborhoods, that restrict traffic on residential roads have caused public outcry. Some traveled from across the country to the protest, others were locals wanting their voices heard. We're here today to basically protest against a whole series of measures that Oxford County Council are bringing in. It's not just LTNs, it's also traffic filters which are roadblocks on the main roads, they're closing car parks, they're charging people to drive through the middle of town and they're even going to charge you to park at work. Businesses are shutting, people who've worked hard all their life are losing their livelihoods because of them Um, and I think they need to be stopped. It's like one neighbour not speaking to the other neighbour because it's anti-LTN or pro-LTNs. So we really, really need to sort this out and we are saying no LTN, so many demonstrations. We've been speaking to county council, city council, local councillors, they are all ignoring us. The council's proposals include a 15-minute neighbourhood that's designed for residents to have access to essentials within a 15-minute walk of their home, as well as traffic filters that restrict how many times residents can travel on certain roads. Campaigner and co-founder of the Together Association, Alan Miller, says it's impacting locals and businesses. So low traffic neighbourhoods already have had a significant impact. We've just seen that a restaurant has closed after 17 years in Oxford as a consequence of it. And now uh, the proposal for the 15-minute city where you have bus gates on six roads and you prevent cars, uh, many other cars from going through those areas... You get passes for 100 passes as though somehow now we've negotiated our ability and our freedom to move. We never had a national debate or a local debate about that. There are also wider concerns around civil liberties. Frankly, we've never agreed to this, right? And people have just come out of a few years of severe measures uh, around lockdowns and restrictions. There's a discussion about digital ID and surveillance and control. All of these things are based on having cameras to monitor. There's concerns around surveillance and there's concerns around central bank digital currency and how those things are all linked. Because Sadiq Khan, in the discussion about ULES expansion, has said, well, it would be really good and effective if we could just have it all done electronically at source. 
So all of a sudden you get into a situation that could be very, very problematic from the point of view of civil rights and civil liberties. Local police said a small number of arrests were made at the protests in Oxford for public order offences, but the vast majority of people were peaceful. With similar traffic schemes proposed in other parts of the country, this certainly won't be the last time people will be making their voices heard. Jane Worrell, NTD News. Three candidates have put themselves forward to fill Scotland's top government position. The current First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, is stepping down. Sturgeon has said she feels the time is right and said she doesn't want to limit Scottish independence efforts. With eight years in the office, she's Scotland's longest-serving first minister. She's also stepping down as leader of her party. One of the candidates is Scottish Health Secretary Humza Youssef. He's seen by many as a continuity candidate after having spent over a decade in the Scottish government. Finance Secretary Kate Forbes also has thrown her hat into the ring. A recent newspaper poll found she was the most popular candidate. But Forbes may struggle to win over progressive party members due to reviews on abortion, same-sex marriage, and transgender issues. The third candidate is member of the Scottish Parliament, Ash Regan. She's also opposed to the Scottish government's gender recognition changes. She even stepped down from her role as community safety minister to enable her to vote against the legislation. Regan lacks the cabinet experience that the other candidates have, but has one backing from an influential member of parliament. Brick, wood, or cocaine? With the huge quantity of drugs being seized in Ecuador, the country has decided to put it to use as a unique new construction material. The amount of drugs seized in Ecuador in 2021 exceeded 230 tons. Police say most of that is cocaine. The story in 2022 wasn't much different. In fact, the quantity of drugs confiscated exceeds the available space at 27 police warehouses where police keep the drugs until destroying them. The record amounts also exceed the capacity of the ovens normally used for incineration. Now the country is using some of the excess cocaine as construction material. First thing to be done is to bring the drug and pulverize it. Where? In an appropriate machine, a grinder. It's then put in a hole in the ground. In that hole, you place the drug and then mix it. It's like making concrete for the foundation of a house. That mix is then placed into holes that are its final place, where the mixture will remain. Hundreds of blocks of cocaine hydrochloride and coca paste arrive each week to a waste treatment plant. Workers then break it down along with glass, expired medicines, and oil waste. The powder is then mixed with other material to produce cement to be used in construction. Authorities are using this process to fill a 50-foot deep hole with layers of the concrete. It will later form a warehouse floor. The process is helping to free up police drug collection centers. And still to come, a new project to connect a Mexican tourist city to ancient jungles and Mayan historical sites is causing concerns. Experts say the ecosystem is too fragile. In Australia, competition from multinational companies is straining the survival of family-owned tugboat businesses. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. Good to have you back with us. Pristine wilderness and ancient cave systems in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula are critically endangered by a government railway project. 
That's according to droves of scientists and environmental activists. Parts of Mexico's remote southern jungles have barely changed since the time of ancient Maya. But now, scientists and environmental activists say the pristine wilderness and ancient cave systems beneath the jungle floor of the Yucatan Peninsula are critically endangered. It's due to a new government railway project, the Tren Maya, which aims to bring connectivity and economic benefits to deprived areas. The 910-mile-long rail line is set to connect Mexico's top tourist destination, Cancun, to the ancient Mayan temples of Chichen Itza and Palenque. But experts warn the train will disrupt wildlife routes and already fragile ecosystems. Local guide Ismael Lara shares the concerns. Here we suffer from a terrible drought. From April to May onwards, temperatures reach 104 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 degrees Celsius. And unfortunately, we don't have a water supply. These animals have to migrate to other places to find water. The train will split the jungle and will interrupt these animals' way to find water. President Andres Manuel López Obrador has pledged to finish the flagship rail route by the end of 2023. But the $20 billion project has divided Mexicans and raised questions of how best to balance economic progress with environmental responsibility. Mexico's tourism agency, charter of the project, says the railway will lift more than a million people out of poverty and create up to 715,000 new jobs by 2030. But it will also bring the modern world closer to vulnerable species such as jaguars and bats. The train will pass above a system of thousands of subterranean caves carved out from the region's soft limestone bedrock by water over millions of years. Scientists and activists say the government has cut corners in environmental risk assessments in an attempt to complete the project, while López Obrador is still in office. One environmentalist told Reuters they spotted construction material leaking into a cave, affecting water supplied to people and animals living on the peninsula. Part of the government's impact study for the project says the governmental risks are insignificant and have been adequately mitigated. The ancient caves have also been site of discoveries, such as human fossils and Mayan artefacts, like a canoe estimated to be more than a thousand years old. Despite the concerns about the railway, it has the support of many in villages, who for generations have been largely forgotten in national development plans. I think it's an ambitious project, especially because it will bring infrastructure and tourism, which is the main source of economic activity here. Therefore, it will help us quite a lot. If we get to have this project and keep it, we will get the progress we need. In Australia, regional tugboat firms are facing new threats from globalization. In many ways, leading a family business has never been tougher. Since its founding half a century ago, Mackenzie's tugboat service has been thriving in Port Esperance, Western Australia. Brooke Mackenzie is the latest member of the family to join the business as a fourth-generation tugboat captain. At just 27 years old, Brooke is one of the youngest tugboat captains in the country. But in the meantime, she has seen the plight of their decades-old enterprise. It's now under pressure from industry giants. The company has recently lost a contract to a multinational competitor. We're so small and isolated in WA there, and there is a lot of competition and multinational companies coming into Australia and WA. And a lot of these larger companies like to claim that because they operate across multiple ports in multiple countries, that it makes them stronger. Personally, I don't think that's, that's the ideal solution. 
This year, the contract to operate in the port of Esperance will go up for bid. If McKenzie fails to win the deal, their business may come to an end. To survive the competition, businesses like McKenzie's will need financial help to upgrade. The company intends to buy a new tug for larger ships. It's an investment that may prove vital in the long run, as authorities say competition for regional tugs is set to grow. And still to come, a Lebanese potter struggles to keep his traditional craft alive. Lebanon faces an economic and financial crisis, which has led to a drop in demand for his work. And Yosemite Valley's sunset spectacle is drawing thousands of visitors, but it takes luck to meet the wonder of nature. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. A Lebanese potter is fighting to keep a traditional craft alive. For nearly three years, Lebanon has been grappling with an economic and financial crisis that has led to a drop in demand for handcrafted pottery. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more. This is Khaled Daw's pottery workshop. The traditional craft of pottery can be traced back thousands of years ago to the Phoenicians. That agent pottery was exported on mules to neighboring Lebanon. Daw has been making pottery for over 34 years. My relationship with this craft is more sentimental than it is work. This craft is artistic more than it is functional. This profession has creativity. It has beauty in the work. Lebanon's pottery workshops have declined over the years, with the craft facing difficulties due to Lebanon's economic crisis. This is what motivates us to be creative and find ways to keep on going. We faced many crises, no doubt. But to be honest, this is the biggest and deepest crisis that Lebanon has faced that I know of since I opened my eyes and until today. Daw explains he has had to be resourceful to keep the craft alive. We have had our customers for decades. They are also struggling to continue. We are trying to continue together. We are cooperating all together for this craft to remain because this craft is suffering from extinction extinction in Lebanon by all means. Daw inherited this plot of land in front of the workshop from his father and built a wood-fired oven. He hopes this approach can help keep the workshop's doors open. This is a new oven that I built to burn wood, similar to the way our ancestors worked. Fuel is very expensive now. Economically, it is no longer a winning equation. So I built this wood oven. We will see if we will be able to continue with this method or we will have to close down for sure. But Daw fears the craft could become extinct. His is one of two workshops left in the area that still work with the clay in this traditional way. Despite the challenges, Daw refuses to let go or close down the workshop. His work is more than a profession, it's his passion. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Carnival festivities in Cologne have peaked with a colorful parade through the city. The traditional Rose Monday parade is one of Europe's biggest street parties. Aloft they cheer as one of Europe's biggest carnival parades begins. It is a traditional greeting associated with the Cologne Carnival. Accompanied by music and cheers of Kole Alaf, floats and tractors proceed along the four-mile route through the city. Members of local carnival clubs throw sweets and bunches of flowers into the crowd. It's a riotous event of music, color, and dancing that winds its way through historic streets and past the ancient cathedral. A beautiful natural phenomenon in California's Yosemite National Park is captivating visitors. 
It only occurs for a few short weeks each February. The valley's horsetail fall flows over the eastern edge of El Capitan, the world's largest exposed granite boulder. When the sun sets at a specific angle, the small waterfall glows orange against the light, making it look like it's on fire. But the spectacle doesn't come around very often. It can only happen when the skies are clear and when the waterfall is flowing. This year, the water spread out in a mist, giving a pinkish glow to the rock. It's a hit and miss kind of thing. I, I was here, I remember being here a few years ago. It was absolutely beautiful. We were here and then literally five minutes before it was gonna start, a cloud came in and just, you know, just destroyed it. So, so it's one of those things where, where we always recommend to people, um, Hey, if you if you really want to see it, you know, if you can give yourself, you know, more than one night. So we've been here plenty of times in the spring and summer, but this is our this is my first time here in the winter and I'm I'm hoping it turns out to be fabulous. Thousands of visitors from all over the world gather in the park. Many of them are photo enthusiasts and nature lovers. Given the popularity of the site, park authorities have put a limit on arrivals to avoid overcrowding and congestion. At the moment, entry is only possible by reservation. In the Bahamas, a daring dog takes on a 12-foot hammerhead shark, and it was all caught on camera. It happened off the coast of Exuma. You can hear the passengers who are on a boat tour gasp and scream as the dog leaps into the water and appears to fight the shark. Then the dog manages to get away. The Exuma Water Sports Company says the feisty pup lives on the private island. It's unclear if the dog was defending its home or just looking to play with the shark. Either way, the dog escaped the incident unharmed, and hopefully the shark did too. That's all for today's program. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.